All right. Well, our ushers are uh, coming around to bring note sheets and pencils and Bibles. So if you need a Bible, make sure you indicate that by raising your hand, and our guys will be glad to get an English Standard Version right in your hands so that you can use that for our service today. If you are visiting our service, you don't have a Bible of your own, we would encourage you to take that Bible, put your name in it, and take it home. Use that Bible to, to seek the Lord and to learn more about Him. We want the Word of God in the hands of, of every person. So uh, that's our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, word on the street is things are getting better with the plumbing up there. Hopefully we will be able to have some, uh, some bathrooms available before long. Pro tip when it comes to plumbing, you're not supposed to flush face masks down the toilet. Apparently there was a mass of them stuck in our plumbing. So I thought that might be obvious, but you know it almost feels like sabotage at some point. Uh, when we see things like this happen. But we're really grateful for uh, Augie, our friend of the church, who came to do that for us. And uh, hopefully that will be snaked out and we'll be able to have working plumbing again in no time. But in the meantime, we have the Word of God and we are here to study it this morning. And where would we be without the Scripture? The Word of God is described as life for us. It is like daily bread, like a nourishment that we cannot do without if we neglect the Word of God. And it's like we're starving our souls. It is our rule and our standard. It gives us security and it gives us like a moral compass by which we can navigate life. In it, God shows us who He truly is. And by paying careful attention to the Word that God has given to us, we're greatly defended against deception. We are less likely to fall into error ourselves whether that deception comes from outside of us or whether it is our own naturally sinful heart that is trying to to deceive us and make us believe what we know is not true. The Word of God guards us. When we are Christians, the Word of God reminds us of who we are. It, It will sting our hearts when we're getting into sin and walking into paths that we know we don't belong in. The Word of God is not a dead thing, limited in its usefulness, only to a specific era or specific circumstances. No, it is valuable to us in every phase of life and remains relevant to each successive generation who enjoys the blessings that God has stored in it. And so as we read through these essential words, we see see principles, we see instructions, we see warnings, and we see patterns. One such pattern that you might have already taken note of uh, as you study Scripture is going to show up throughout the Bible, is particularly clearly uh, available to us in the New Testament, but really you can find it in the Old Testament as well. It's a pattern by which God establishes His will for us. When God is laying out His intentions for His own people, theology very commonly precedes behavior. So when we think about this, an example would be maybe the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is is approaching the people who have gathered to hear what he has to say, disciples that are following after him, who are committed to him, who believe that he is who he says he is. And in the Sermon on the Mount, how does it begin? It begins with descriptions of what how blessed it is to be a follower of the Lord God. These these blessed beatitudes that when we are his, then then we will inherit the earth. When we are his, then then we will be peacemakers like he is a peacemaker. We will be filled with the things that we need. And so this theology of belonging to the Lord God is established first. And then as he reminds us that we are salt and light of the world, then he begins to show us how that flows out. 
how that flows out of that beautiful theology of belonging to God and being transformed by Him. As transformed people now, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We go forward into the world and proclaim the excellencies of this God who is such a blessing to us. We live according to the law, but not just to the letter of the law. We live the law out of our hearts. We have a love for our brother and sister. We don't just avoid murder or avoid adultery, but we want our minds and our hearts to be clean and pure. And we don't take for granted the fact that it is easy to fall into temptation. And it is easy to, to, to walk in the appearance of religiosity, but not have a heart that is truly set on the Lord. And so through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that our theology should make a reaction in our lives spring forth where we live according to the love we have for our Savior. We see it also in, in, in the book of Ephesians. If you've been in our Sunday school class, and, and I know my brother Ivan is like, yes, I was hoping he would mention Ephesians because what do you get in the first half of Ephesians? You get the wonderful blessings, the theology of salvation, that we are His. and In fact, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places if we belong to Christ. It, it describes why we need to be saved, how we are saved, and, and the blessings that flow from that. And in the second half of the book, what does Paul do? He shows the Ephesians how that theology now expands into our behavior and our action. And now we have instruction on how to speak and how to walk and how to serve one another. He addresses different avenues of life, whether you're a husband or a wife or a child or even a slave. This is how you, se- you serve the Lord because of the theology of salvation that has changed you and redefined who you are. Romans, same thing. 11 chapters of theology. 11 chapters of this is why, and then starting in chapter 12, now therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies, your whole lives, in fact, as a living sacrifice unto the Lord God. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, for this is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And so you now have behavior that flows out of theology. So this is a, this is a pattern that we see so often in the Scripture And we're going to see that now with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians as he has desired for the people in Corinth to understand particularly the beauty of serving one another in the context of the church, using the Holy Spirit's provided gifts to be an asset and a benefit to one another. He's talked about the why. He's talked about some of the the, the basis behind the spiritual gifts and, and how we should think about them and our attitudes towards one another. And now he's going to show how we live that out specifically in the context of worshiping our God on the Lord's Day. So if you've got your Bibles and you have chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians open, we're actually going to finish out this chapter today. We're going to tackle quite a few scriptures because this chunk is very thematically linked. And so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, 
and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Can we pray together and ask God to give us guidance through these words? Lord, a lot here to contemplate and to think of, Father, but you are a God who doesn't want our theology to stay simply in the mind, but you teach us why so that we will then live according to the means and and the, the meanings that you give to us in your word. So help us to see how we might apply some of these principles that you have been uh, laying as a foundation for our understanding of the ways that we are to interact with one another, Lord God. Help us to bow our hearts to your scripture, to be humble before you as you lead us and tell us what is best, Lord God. You know what you desire in worship. So, Father, help us to embrace your instructions and help us to worship you according to your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. OCDs in full effect. (laughs) Gotta have that star straight. Thank you. We can all now focus on the scripture. (laughs) That's great. That's great. I don't have the physical gifts to do that. My brother Sam is a friendly giant and he can do it. So praise the Lord. Now this section of chapter 14 begins like this. It says, what then, brothers? Think about those words for just a second. Don't just blaze past it. What then, brothers? In other words, what Paul is saying here, the apostle is saying, so what? Right? I've just taught you all these great things about spiritual gifts. I have just spent time with you, going over why they're important and how to think about them properly. But so what? How do we live according to those things now? How do we respond to that instruction that God gives to us? He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And and so we need to first acknowledge this, that, that Paul's taking these principles on the spiritual gifts and he's applying them very specifically here. He's applying them very specifically to the gathering of the saints for worship. When you come together, it's specifically pointing to the Lord's Day on Sundays. It's what they would do regularly. Um, As the New Covenant Church is established, there were regular gatherings on the first day of the week, perhaps in the morning, perhaps in the evening, depending on availability. There wasn't anything prescribed about what time of day it had to be. Uh, We know that a lot of the early believers were slaves, and slaves wouldn't necessarily be free in the morning. So sometimes church was probably done at night on Sundays, on the Lord's Day. But what we are looking at here is specific instruction about that weekly, regular, committed gathering that the saints were to be partaking in. And he says, when you come together, in other words, when you take time to be with each other, to worship your God, this essential, regular action that God's people are committed to, that each one has this something to give. Each one of you comes with an offering. Now, it could be taken two ways. Maybe Paul is saying, everybody's trying to bring their offering. He might be critical in the way that he says that. Or he might be just saying simply, 
God has blessed you all with something to give. Let's look at the right way to give whatever offering you have to give of the Lord. Because he has taken time here to remind us that we all have spiritual gifts. They've been distributed by the Holy Spirit. They are fueled by his power. Each individual here has something important to contribute to the well-being and the edification of the church. And so this coming together, this bringing of many different gifts together is not a contest. None should be neglected in this. But to that end, the church cannot allow an individual's personal expression of spiritual gifts to hinder the goal of edification. There need to be guidelines. There need to be boundaries to how we worship. And so Paul begins to lay out some practical guiding principles that regulate our worship. He says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at three most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, then let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So in these brief couple of verses here, we have laid out for us three principles that are boundary markers. They are guidelines to how we are to approach the Lord God in a worshipful way. It is uh, the first principle laid out here that only two or three may be allotted the opportunity to speak. When you gather together, it's not like everybody lines up and everyone has an opportunity to speak. Only two or three may be allotted the opportunity to do this. It is possible, friends, to try and say too much in a worship service. Focus has value. Do not let things get too far off topic. When we come together as a church, Paul is letting them know, look, there are so many good things that can be said about the Lord, but it's not really going to help us to corporately come together and to grow if we are trying to say every single thing possible about the Lord. Let's put our minds on one or two or maybe three things and really focus on those things. And let's, let's let our attention really meditate on the good things of the Lord God. The Lord knows our limitations, right? He knows that we can only handle so much. Our minds are not like His minds. Isaiah 55 reminds us that His thoughts are far above and beyond our thoughts, right? So we've got to be realistic about what we can handle as people. And we should not try to take in too much at once. Now, I'm not particularly gifted as a chef. For those of you who don't know, our brother Sam, who just showed his excellency in fixing stars, is also a wonderful chef. And there are many of you in this congregation that are great at cooking. Whether you're good or bad at it, you probably at your house, in your cupboards, have a number of spices, a whole bunch of condiments, um, flavoring agents that you can use when you're building a nice dish. And each one of those spices, each one of those condiments, each one of those a little elements that you can add to food has its purpose. There's a reason that you bought it. It fits a certain recipe or a certain genre of food. But if you were to try to go into your cupboards and use all of those spices at the same time, would the meal that you prepared taste very good? No. Would it likely make you sick to your stomach? Yes. My, my poor wife tells me about her tortured upbringing with three older brothers and how sometimes when they had friends over, they would make her a special milkshake and they would put a bunch of stuff together and they would harass her until she took a drink of the milkshake and it was always some disgusting thing with cayenne pepper and hot sauce and things in it. So, so uh, I've never done that to her. So she likes me better than she likes her brothers. But you can imagine what it would taste like if you try to put all those things in at one time. 
even one individual can try and say too many different things in one setting. You know, looking back at my preaching, which I, I try to do, I don't, I don't just preach and then move on. I also try to reflect. I want to grow in what the Lord has called me to do. So sometimes I'll go back and watch some of my older sermons. And I know there are times when I have stepped into this pulpit so excited to share the truth of God with you, but because I didn't consider the importance of focus, I didn't consider the fact that man's attention has its limits. I said so much that I didn't say anything at all, really. I said so many little things here and there. I followed too many rabbit trails. I got off track that it was almost impossible to follow the stream of thought. And I didn't do you justice to the word. I, I, I confused rather than making things more clear. So every believer in this room has something useful to share. But when it comes together time for us to come together for corporate worship. We need to limit the scope a bit so that we are experiencing the goodness of God in a specific way together. We are built up as one body and that one body goes through experiences as a whole. So not everyone can speak. Not everyone can share. The way God wants us to worship is made clear here. Two, maybe three people are to speak and the rest can wait for another time. We've got hopefully a lot of time together as a church to grow and to experience the goodness of God. Now, this has to do with prophetic utterances, right? We're specifically focusing on the word of the Lord being proclaimed. It doesn't mean that you can't have one person pray for the offering and another person welcome prayer and then another person do the announcements. You don't want to get too legalistic in that regard. Our context here is the proclamation of the good word of God. So verses 27 and 28 have an intended scope, and that scope has the aim of limiting some unhealthy behavior that the Corinthians were engaging in. We know that that involved the misuse of the gift of tongues. And so here we see a second principle in play, the second regulating principle. Those who speak must take turns without disruption, without interruption. The use of the gifts must be coordinated. It must work together for the building up of the saints. The worship services of the saints are not to be a time of competing ideas. The church gathered is, is not an arena whereby the, the gifted speakers test themselves against one another until one becomes the dominant voice in the congregation. No, those who minister the word to others during the Lord's day are to be respectful of one another. They're to work together, all aiming for the edification of the body of Christ corporately. So Paul is declaring, Corinthians, do not blurt out what you have to say. Take turns. Respect the work of God in and through one another. So don't approach it like, well, this guy's trying to talk, but he's taking up all the time. I've got more important things to say, so I'm just going to start talking over him. No, we should, we should be respectful and realize that the word of God doesn't just come through one person. It comes through anybody who's filled with the Spirit. And this challenged the typical way that they were doing things. This threatened the established culture and traditions of the Corinthian church. They were kind of in this mode where if they felt led by the Spirit, they would just speak out. They would stop whatever was going on. They would interrupt, and they would cause chaos in the congregation. We're all going to run into these mini crises of obedience where we've been doing things a certain way in our lives, and then as we read through the Word and we learn more, or we're challenged by other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, that we realize that something that's our tradition, something that we've been doing for a long time the same way, that it really is opposed by Scripture. And these Corinthians, they were real, probably real comfortable with what they were doing. And Paul is saying, listen, no, no, no. The way you're expressing the spiritual gifts is not an honor to the Lord. In fact, it 
sends the wrong impression of what kind of God you serve and you worship. So that tradition has got to go. That way of doing things needs to change. So this regulating principle requires a degree of humility from those who hear it, doesn't it? It means that you're not the only one with something important to say. It means that you aren't so arrogant as to act as though you are the only one with the Holy Spirit in that place. Stop and listen. Don't just be so inclined to proclaim and to speak and to convince, but hear your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It could require some patience to obey this. As one person has something on their heart and mind to share, they must also remain aware that they're not just there to give, they're also there to receive. And the Lord could very well be delivering important truths to them by the words of another person who's speaking that morning. I am often struck by an element of prayer that happens before I get into this pulpit or by a song that we sing together. I'll just be sitting there worshiping just like you're worshiping and the Lord will open my eyes to something that I had been ignoring or will convict my heart about something that I haven't been faithful in or will remind me through the prayer time that there are things that are, 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 are so monumentally blessing to us that we should be grateful to our God and that this service should not just be a, a time when we come together because we're supposed to obey, but it's a time when we come together because we're glad. We're glad the Lord is who He is and we're glad that He's done what He has done. So I, I might come up here to offer something to you in preaching, but before I have the opportunity to even do that, God has blessed me through the singing of the congregation or the prayer of another brother in the Lord so we, we often have to be aware that God could be ministering to us even when we're dead set on ministering to others that God might have in mind to do something in our hearts as we gather together. A third principle here zeroes in on more specific challenges that are being faced in that particular congregation. Here's the third regulating principle. Tongues must be accompanied by an interpreter. Because prophecy has priority over tongues, and if you need more uh, on that argument, we just preached about that a couple weeks ago. You can look up that sermon online. Uh, the video is there. Prophecy, the prophetic preaching of the word, has priority over tongues. Tongues are only allowed in the gathered service if there is an interpreter present. Once the tongue is interpreted into the language of people that, that are there that can understand it, it essentially becomes prophecy, assuming that it is truly from God and is saying what the rest of the word also says. So realize what the Lord has accomplished by His Word through Paul. This regulating principle makes speaking in tongues in the gathering of the saints more or less a non-starter. I have been exposed to what some would call the spiritual gift of speaking, uh, speaking in tongues on a number of occasions. And I have never one time seen this biblical regulation followed. Not once. I have heard people speaking out ecstatic sounds... They are convinced in their minds it's an angelic language or some kind of a foreign language that they don't know, but there's nobody there who understands it either. And rather than stopping and saying, well, for the benefit of the body of Christ, let's, let's put that on pause until an interpreter can be found or until someone can show us what is being said here, they just keep going on and on until they feel satisfied. And that's not according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul here is making it very clear that there are guidelines to our worship People can't just burst out in irreverent, in interrupting, disruptive ways without some kind of benefit to their brothers and sisters. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. This is a simple, plain regulation put forth 
to guard the worship service from chaos, from becoming what God never intended it uh, to be. Sunday mornings is a time for God to be exalted. It's not a time for people to come as if entering into an arena where they can show off how special they are. That's not what church is about. It's not a free-for-all for people to make the service whatever kind of a service they want it to be. It is not a battleground where people speak over each other with competing ideas. The Apostle Paul is reminding them what worship is supposed to accomplish. It is supposed to build up the body of Christ while Christ is being exalted and lifted up as the greatest object of our affection and desire. I, uh, I remember one particular, I think I was watching it online, a service from a charismatic congregation. I might have been there in person, I can't remember. But there was one guy on stage, he was one of the worship leaders, and he began in the middle of a song to just say the same six or seven syllables over and over again. And if you paid any attention, you could tell that it was the exact same things in a pattern, in a repetition. And then I did see one person stand up and say, listen to what our brother is saying here. He's saying, and then he went on and expounded like four paragraphs, five paragraphs of description about what the man was saying. But it really does not take a genius to realize that the spoken language sounds correlate to meaning. And so if he's saying seven sounds over and over again, he's not saying four paragraphs worth of meaning. So this interpretation wasn't even a real interpretation of what was being said. It was just a a veiled attempt to make an inappropriate expression seem biblical in the time. And that is the only time I've heard somebody try to express interpretation of a person speaking in so-called tongues. How much more is it evident of God working in a person when they can just take the word of God and show you in scripture, which we all know and trust and believe, how our God is instructing us in a given way. Why do we feel like it is somehow more special or relevant when somebody speaks it out in ecstatic ways or when there's a fresh word from the Lord? Really our desire for that, our desire for something new and novel and supernatural in our midst is much like those who are fed by Christ, the, the multitudes who are fed by Christ, when he took just a few loaves and fishes and he multiplied them to feed the masses, and the next day they came back and they said, feed us more fish. We want more loaves and fishes. They wanted another sign, another miracle. And he, he called them out on that. He's like, that's not, that's not the sign that you need. That's not the sign that you need. You need faith in the Lord God. And so really we don't need these ecstatic expressions when the the word of God is so good to us, it is so trustworthy and it is so beneficial. Let us keep our minds and hearts set upon the word instead of convincing ourselves that we need something more than that, as if the word is not enough. That leads us to a, a fourth principle. Fourth regulating principle is that everything that is said must be subject to the holy word of God. Look at how the Apostle Paul lays this out in verses 29 through 32. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. What does that mean? That means they are to judge whether or not what is being said here coincides with the rest of God's revelation to us. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to one another, to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to what? To prophets. That means that somebody who claims to have a prophecy of the Lord 
Everything that they have to say is subject to what the prophets have already given to us in Scripture. So the Scripture has got to be the regulating principle for everything that is said in an ecstatic tongue. When you're weighing something, you're, you're putting it against a standard, right? You're testing it against something that is already known. You're measuring it. We have a standard, and our standard is God's Word, and it is a good standard. It is what we need to walk through this life in a faithful way, in a way that is coinciding with the Word of God that He has given to us with His desires and for His plans for His church. God reveals Himself progressively through time. He does not erase or replace what He said before with a fresh new word. His words don't go stale. They don't become irrelevant over time. When God has revealed something new about himself, it never contradicts or disproves what he proclaimed through his previous revelations. It may build upon it, it may deepen it, it may enrich it, but it doesn't replace it, it doesn't render what was said before inaccurate or untrue. So whatever is said as being the instruction of the saints is to be tested against what the scriptures have already said to us, And it's subject to the scrutiny of other teachers of God's word who happen to be present in that day. Now, if somebody is speaking in a language that nobody can understand, who can weigh that? Who can judge that? It creates kind of a pocket of vulnerability where a person can just ecstatically say whatever they want to say and no one can test it to the scripture. And that's a dangerous situation to put yourself in, friends. That's why Paul is so intent. Look for an interpreter. Get somebody who can really understand these things and then let's weigh those things against Scripture because we can't afford to let our churches be led astray by doctrine that opposes the word that God has given to us. Otherwise, our churches become idle places, idle workshops where we come around a man who has a great charisma, a great personality, and people are so swept up and so attracted to that individual that they're not actually seeking the power of God anymore. The word must be our standard and rule. So whatever is being said as being the instruction of the saints is to be tested against the scripture and is subject to the scrutiny of other teachers of God's word that happen to be present there that day. A person may not filibuster and dominate the conversations so that no one else can question or challenge what they have to say. I love our Sunday school class because people have ideas. They have insights into the word and we respect each other in there. We care about each other. And so people will stop and listen to one another and we'll, we'll bring up ideas And it's a place where we can safely go back and forth and always come back around to the Word of God so that the Word of God might inform us and give us the final word on what we're to think. And if we don't have a final word yet, that's where we go back to to continue to look until we get that final word. We go to His Scripture. This is very different from a cult, by the way, where the handling of directions and laws is in the hands of a very few at the top of an organization. And the people are not welcome to weigh what their teachers say against the scripture. In fact, in, in most cults, even those cults that claim to be Christian, there isn't this sincere encouragement for the people to go and learn their word. There is an idea that there is a prophet or somebody at the top or a small group of people. They are the only ones who have the true interpretation of what's going on. But Paul is saying here that, listen, the prophets are going to interpret the prophets. This is what we call the analogy of faith, that Scripture interprets Scripture best. So let's let the Word continue to show us whether things that are spoken of, ideas, philosophies, theologies, whether they hold water and whether they're worth our time or not. So this is an important source of spiritual defense for you, church, for the congregation. 
It means that I cannot preach whatever I feel like preaching up here. Because what I have to say must accord with the scripture that is available to every one of you. It means that I can't preach whatever I feel like preaching up here because you have other godly men who have been drawn to teaching ministries by the Holy Spirit who will not stand for biblical heresy being preached from this pulpit. They've got to respond to it in an orderly fashion and challenge me if I say things that are not scriptural. That leads to better edification in the church and it is a safeguard for you so that there's not some guy who's loud and convincing who can get up here and just run away with this congregation to take it where he wants it to go because the word of God is our defense. The foundational reality that undergirds all these guiding principles is laid out in verse 33. It says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What a blessing to us to know that the God we've come to worship today is not a God of chaos. He is a God who is peaceful and a God who wants resolution in the heart and souls of men. The worship services that we attend on Sunday mornings are meant to glorify this God who is stable and steady. He is not a nonsensical, contentious God. And so his worship services that exalt him should be characterized by peace. Consider the words that uh, we read this morning from Psalm 145 as we got ourselves ready for worship today. Those words uh, have been used to begin many services over the ages in many different churches because Psalm 145 is such an explicit expression of praise and worship to a God who deserves it. But think about some of the things that were said there. In verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. In other words, what we're preaching and celebrating today will be preached and celebrated a hundred years from now, Lord willing, unless he returns before then. Right? These are the same things that the saints were, were worshiping God with 1,200 years ago. Verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We don't serve a God with a trigger finger who with the the littlest misstep can cause him to go off and just lose his cool. We serve a God who is immutable. He is unchangeable. And so all of his expressions are faithful and right. They don't just fly off the handle whichever which way, depending on the day. God is a consistent God to us. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 11, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is not a chaotic God. This is a God of constancy and dependability. His love is steadfast, committed love, not the whim of the desires. His character never wavers, and he is not a capricious or mischievous God. The services that lift him up and exalt his name should be tributes to his immutability, the fact that he never changes. They should reflect the order and the intention that he has in everything that he does. Aren't you so grateful that our God is a God of order and peace? I am incredibly comforted by the character and the nature of our steady God. I want you to think back for a moment to last week's closing thought from the sermon that we experienced here also in 1 Corinthians 14. We finished last week by meditating on how destructive it can be when our worship services, when a church allows their worship service to be designed and based on the desires and the wants of the lost world they're trying to reach. We talked about what a risk that is and how when we 
make what we are as a church and how we gather together to worship, when we let the, the whims of our culture and the desires of what is popular in the day define who we are as a church, how much danger that places us in and how it makes us ineffective because the power and the glory of God is not on display if all we're doing is catering to the desires of a people who don't even know what to desire properly. The services that lift God up should be tributes to His consistency. Our church is a blessing to us, but it is designed to fulfill the will of God, not the will of men. You are the bride of Christ. You've heard the scripture describe you that way, right? But you are not individually brides of Christ. The bride of Christ is the corporate church. So we need to understand that we are stewards of this body of believers. We are like the bridesmaids who are assigned to have the responsibility of keeping that bride, the corporate church, pure and undefiled and holy. And we work together towards that end. We rest in the word to supply us as we strive for that goal to be completed. I want to bring your attention at this point to two distinct approaches that ministers of the gospel commonly take as they pray through and debate how the church is supposed to worship the triune God. There are two basic camps, two streams of thought, if you will, and I will define both of them. But I want to say right up front, uh, make it very clear that it's near impossible for anyone to be 100% in this camp or 100% in the other camp. Most Christian leaders, whether they use these terms or not, and many have never heard these terms before, but they're useful to us, and so I, I think it's good for us to be thinking about them. Most pastors are going to fall somewhere in the spectrum between these two poles. So let's establish some definitions. One approach to assembling the worship service and determining what goes on in times like this is called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship. The normative principle holds the viewpoint that God has given us a large degree of freedom in deciding how we should worship Him. And it looks to the scripture to see what is expressly forbidden by God so that the church doesn't go in that direction. If the word forbids a particular action, it cannot be practiced by faithful Christians. However, according to the normative principle, if the word does not say that a particular practice is wrong or unacceptable to God, the normative principle would say that it's permissible. The normative principle does not ignore the commands of God that he gives about how to worship, but he does not see them as exhaustive and therefore understands there to be much gray area that man has the freedom to fill in. This allows church to look very different from place to place under the normative principle, from culture to culture, from age to age. Now, let me give you an example of how this might play out. Some congregations are set up so that on months with a fifth Sunday, they don't gather for corporate worship. Instead, they encourage and coordinate their people in their church to not come to church, but to volunteer in programs that would be beneficial to the community, particularly to non-believers. So I think there are four Sundays a month, uh, something like that, fifth Sundays a month, where they don't do church, they go out into their communities and they serve. The idea is that it encourages the church to be a blessing to the people that they live near, and it sends a positive message to those who might have a negative view of believers. 
Is this something God commands the church to do? To stop worshiping on fifth Sundays and go into the community and serve them? Not explicitly. But the word doesn't seem to forbid it either. So a church directed largely by the normative principle might feel perfectly comfortable worshiping God in this creative way. So that would be a normative way of approaching how to do church. Now we contrast that approach to what is called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. Now the regulative principle of worship holds to the belief that God is very invested in how his people worship him. And it holds fast the idea that we should therefore strive to worship God only in the ways that he has expressly commanded us to worship him. Now again, our context is the Lord's day. We do know from passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do in word or deed, do it unto the Lord God. So you can be worshipful in all of the things that you do in your life. But when we're thinking about particularly the organized corporate worship of the church on the Lord's day, those who follow the regulative principle want to worship God only in the ways that he has expressly told them to worship. Because our worship is less an expression of who we are and is more an expression and affirmation of who God is, worship should not be largely shaped by the congregation that is giving that worship to the Lord. It should be shaped by the commands of God and by his own nature and character. So the regulative principle of worship does not see creativity in worship as a sin, but the freedoms that we have to express our adoration to him are to be exercised within significantly narrower boundaries. So let's return to that example that I shared earlier of how some churches would be described as following the normative principle. And some of those have chosen to spend their fifth Sundays not in the church gathered, but in the church scattered out in the community trying to help people out. Would a church that adheres to the regulative principle do something like that? No, they would not. But not because serving people is a bad thing to do. Not at all. Not because it would have no value to the connection that a church has to its community. It might very well help in many ways. A church that is more regulative in its approach would search the word and they would see no precedence for setting aside the form of worship that God has prescribed for the Lord's day. Instead, they would see that the people of God are to gather regularly for the express purposes of prayer, preaching the word of God, praising through song and and adoration, through fellowship of the saints, and that they might serve each other by building each other up in love using the spiritual gifts that God has given to them. So trading that in for community service would trade the best thing, which is what God has told us he wants us to do, for something that's potentially good, which is the service of others. So we serve our community as a regular principal church. We would serve our community, but we would do it in ways that don't inhibit the Lord's Day service. We would find other ways to serve. And in fact, if you might have been part of the crew that came out yesterday as we had one of the biggest distributions we've ever had for food pantry here on a Sunday. We had 70 uh, bags ready to give out, and we ended up giving out 78 bags. We ended up having to go and make extra uh, meals for people and uh, had just enough gift cards to give out. It was a really encouraging time. So thank you, everybody, for participating in that. So again, somebody who follows a regulative principle wouldn't feel comfortable with trading the Sunday morning service that we're doing right now for something like that, but it doesn't mean they don't value that kind of service or that kind of expression of love to God and love to neighbor. Here's another way that you might think about this. 
we could do a family camp someday as a church. We've talked about this as a uh, leadership here. We thought, wouldn't it be cool if we all went out and went camping together as a church? Worship like this that we're doing right now is commanded to be done in this way, but it's not commanded to be done in a building, is it? It's not said in the scripture that we got to do it in the same place every single time. It's simply commanded that it be done, that it be done on the Lord's day, that it be done regularly and with reverence. So we could do this exact thing. We could just do it at a campsite. There's flexibility there, right? We don't invent restrictions where the word does not restrict us, but we do keep in, in mind that God is, he's very invested in how he is worshiped. Think about the Old Testament text. Have you ever read through the book of Leviticus? There's a meme going on right now where it shows this, this school bus and um, the school bus has written on it, uh, my desire to read through the Bible in a year. And then there's a train coming and it's like the book of Leviticus. And then the train hits the bus and it flies off the tracks, right? It often derails us. But if you've read through the book of Leviticus, there's some really important things there where God is showing his people, this is precisely how you will worship me. And it's not like nobody else in the world was worshiping anything. Almost everybody was worshiping. They were worshiping in a multitude of ways. They were, they were expressing their uh, devotion to various other false gods in, in ways that were sometimes kind of similar to what the Jews were doing and sometimes radically different. But God says, regardless of what everybody else is doing, this is how you're going to worship me. He didn't leave a lot of a wiggle room. In fact, we see several instances where the people of God didn't do things the way that God prescribed for them to do, and there were some grave consequences to those things. So the regular principle in worship says that's not just Old Testament God, that's God. And so he cares about how people worship him today in similar ways. Not everything is dictated to us in Scripture. So the regulative principle doesn't mean we've got like a, a special book in the Bible where it tells you exactly how your worship service is supposed to be. There are things that we have to just decide to do one way or the other. We are careful with communion, aren't we, as a church? We fence the table. We make sure that people understand why it's significant. We give people time to express uh, uh, their, their thanksgiving to the Lord in prayer and to ask God to search their hearts. Uh, we, we take it seriously. We look back to the cross. We look forward to the return of Christ. But the means by which people receive the elements is not dictated to us in Scripture. So we do all these things, but sometimes we'll deliver the elements to you. And other times, we'll have you come forward and get the elements. We think there's, there's sort of symbolic significance to both of those things because when you receive it from the people who pass it out to you, you remember that grace is something you didn't run after. It's not something you were searching for. God gave it to you before you even knew you needed it. But then when we come to the table, we realize that when you've got grace, it should be the thing that you desire. It should be the thing that you come forward for, that you're going to make that effort to want to be abiding in Christ and be near to him because you love him. So both of those means of taking communion are symbolically, I think, significant and beneficial to us. And since the word doesn't tell us which way to do those things, there is still some freedom there. It's not like the regulative principle has zero freedom. I also want to make a distinction here. Some of you have been involved with liturgical churches in the past. If you've got a Roman Catholic background, you know what liturgy is, right? Liturgy means that there's a very rigid structure to things, and people do things the same way over and over again. And so some folks make the mistake of thinking that liturgy equals the regulative principle. That's not necessarily the case. Because you can be very repetitive in the way you do things that are unbiblical. You can be very religious in your man-made traditions. And just because they've been around for a long time 
you might convince yourself that this is how the church is supposed to do it. When in reality, if the Bible is not expressly saying these are the ways that we worship God, then those man-made traditions, those liturgies, and some liturgies are great. Some liturgies are built in the scripture and they're very, very explicitly biblical. But if it's a man-made tradition, that it's not something that we should cling to as essential for ourselves. We shouldn't overvalue those man-made traditions. But in fact, we should be careful that we don't let them direct the way that we worship God and, and cause us to worship him in ways that he's not really commanding us to worship him. The regular principle doesn't answer every question. I mean, do we use microphones and project slides? You know, some regulative churches would say, no, we don't. John MacArthur, you're never going to see his preaching accompanied by fancy slides on the screen because he just doesn't feel that's something that should be done. He thinks preaching should be an audible experience and it doesn't need to have visuals attached to it. Some folks are very much against the use of technology. Where we see the use of technology as something that just enhances what we're called to do. It makes it easier for people in the back to hear. It makes it possible for us to project into another room in case we fill this room up. Or if somebody is sick, they can get the live stream. So there's not every single question answered in the regulative principle. Another example, do we sing only the Psalms? Some folks who hold to the regular, regulative principle say, well, if we're going to take this all the way to its ends, let's only sing the Psalms as a church. I have a problem saying that that's definitively how we should do things. Because you read through the New Testament and you read sections of Scripture which are clearly early church hymns. And they're not just repetitions of the Psalms. So in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, for example, or Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul records a section of what was undoubtedly an early chorus of praise to the Lord. And so we know that they were writing new songs. And those songs have the ability to be explicitly about Christ in ways that the Psalms, the Old Testament Psalms, pointed forward to Christ. Some of our songs today can just proclaim the fulfillment of Christ, the things that he has actually done that we have seen now in the New Testament, New Covenant era. So not everybody who's regulative is exactly the same in how they do worship. There is a spectrum. And I think you can see where your elders would fall on that spectrum of normative versus regulative principles of worship. We're firmly more regulative in the way that we assemble the worship service. And this is largely a function of our desire to honor him best to give him the most glory that we can. And the best we can, way we can do that is by giving him what he has told us that he wants from us. The Corinthians were getting a dose of this regulative principle when it came to the way that they were expressing the gift of tongues. They were, at the time, expressing those tongues ecstatically. They were doing it one over another. There wasn't interpretations. And now the Apostle Paul writes this letter and he throws a monkey wrench into the way they were normally worshiping God. They had to stop and say, well, if this is the way that God wants us to worship him, some things need to change around here. Now, the regulative principle doesn't just apply to the spiritual gifts. It doesn't just apply to speaking in tongues. The scripture alone has the authority to regulate all that we do in our efforts to worship the Lord. The two verses stand out here in chapter 14 as it's kind of like a, a side note. But they may be the two verses that have gotten more attention than anything else that Paul writes in chapter 14 over at least the last 60 years of interpretation. It says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence, silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
Now, we have discussed some of this at length in earlier sermons. In chapter 11, we talked about the fact that God has designed an order to things. And that order to things includes special roles for women and special roles for men. That doesn't mean that women are less than men or better than men. It doesn't mean that only men are capable of teaching things. Obviously, we've got some excellent women who are teachers in this congregation who are a blessing to our children, uh, who teach one another. These are these are not indicative. These rules that God gives to us are not indicative of what a, a woman or a man are capable of. They're indicative of God's desire for order and worship in the service. Remember, the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is prophetic utterances in the church gathered together on the Lord's day. Right. So when we read this in context. This does not necessarily forbid a woman from saying anything in the church or from praying at all. We have women pray regularly in our Sunday evening services, and it's a blessing to us. It is speaking speaking specifically about the teaching in the context of the worship service, preaching from the pulpit. Chapter 11's discussion on head coverings has helped us to understand that sometimes we think a certain way about uh, church and then the scripture comes along and makes us think more carefully about those things. We've talked about the matters of conscience and whether a person really feels inclined by the Spirit to wear head coverings. We leave that up to each individual woman. But there are reasons behind those things, and the reason is expression of order. It's an expression of what kind of structure God has given to us within which we are supposed to worship. So there's a regulating principle here. The burden and the responsibility of prophetic instruction is not placed upon women. That is a role that men are to carry. As this is a scriptural restriction, those who hold to the normative principle, remember the normative principle says, if it doesn't say we can't do it, then we're allowed to do it. Those who follow the normative principle of of worship should embrace that as well. But what we find in practice is that many churches that hold the normative view of worship are a lot more open to adjustments and adaptations. They're much more tuned into the creativity of man. And so they have found that they are much more sensitive to the pressures of modern society and more sensitive and and vulnerable to abandoning the structure that God gives, or at least to innovate upon God's design here. And so you see some normative churches where they can see in the scripture that says the women should not preach in the the gathered congregation. And they, they uh, they make exceptions for that by saying, well, our women are not pastors, but they're associates, and so we're allowing them to preach. They're not preaching as pastors, or they'll have a a pastor preach with his wife. And so they're they're trying to get around that principle that's laid out in Scripture. But the regulative principle makes it very clear to us here that that's not God's intention for the congregation. As this is a a scriptural restriction, we must honor it and be grateful that the Lord God has given us this structure and trusted it is for our good and not for oppression and not for discrimination. As much as we may be inclined to do church a certain way, as much as our hearts might um, see no problem with women preaching up in the church, we need to trust that our infinite God knows better than we do and has ordered things properly, and He has done so to His own glory. So the Corinthians needed to humbly see that as well. They needed to, particularly in ways that they were expressing the, the spiritual gifts, see that God was not allowing the ways that they were using their gifts. Were the church in Corinth to ignore these guidelines that Paul gives, it would constitute a serious error of pride on their part. And so in the last verses of chapter 14, Paul anticipates that problem. And so to close out, we look at this section. It says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? 
Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So two phrases we've we got to really focus in on here. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? In other words, this specifically means, did the word of God originate with you? Because if it did, then it isn't the word of God, is it? The word of God comes from God. It comes via mouthpieces such as Paul the Apostle and Peter the Apostle and John who wrote much of the New Testament, Luke. It comes through people, but it must be the Lord's word or else it's not a, a word from the Lord. Prophetic utterance has to originate with the king. He also asks, or are you the only ones that it has reached? In other words, their behavior, especially concerning the use of tongues, was not orthodox among the churches at the time. They were not worshiping God in common ways. They were the only ones doing this. And so Paul does not applaud them for being unique and novel. Instead, he says, look, there's a unity to the churches. Do you think that God is misguiding the rest of us here and that you guys have some special revelation that the rest of us do not have? There needs to be a commonality that the Corinthians were undervaluing here. The, the people of God, if you go to someplace far, far away, if you end up in a church that's preaching the word in Lithuania next week. There should be praying in that church. They should be preaching the word of God. They should be singing praises to his name. There should be meaningful fellowship going on with the people who gathered together because that is what church has been since Christ. And that is what church will be until Christ returns. There is a uniformity to that in that regard because it is what the scripture commands to us. Christ's church is very unique from other religious expressions because Christianity is not man's best shot at figuring out who God is or what he wants. Christ's church is comprised of formerly rebellious men and women who have encountered the holiness of the true God, not because they sought after it or because they discerned it in the stars, not because they unraveled some mystery, but because the Lord drew them to it. He revealed himself to them. So this is God's directive to save, and it is God's prerogative that dictates how those who are saved by him should worship him. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So it's interesting here because Paul's revealing that he indeed understood, at least in this situation, that his writings were not just his own reflections. This was not just wisdom he was getting. This was indeed a thus saith the Lord situation. They were being guided by the Spirit through Paul in this moment. His instruction to them was God-breathed. And here we are reading it centuries later, knowing that this is what the church needs. He's not been heavy-handed in the way that he's approached the Corinthians, but he doesn't want them to mistake this gentleness that he has shown them for apathy. Their behavior is causing them serious problems. And Paul is writing in part to help them see the seriousness with, seriousness with which they need to approach this important task of worshiping the Lord as they gather together. Do you remember the early uh, story in Genesis of Cain and Abel? This is a story that uh, many people are familiar with, but just a quick recap. Adam and Eve have a couple of sons early on. After they are kicked out of the garden, they're banished because of their sin. The curse of sin affects all of creation and death begins to touch every living thing. 
and Cain and Abel are young men. Uh, they are adults capable of uh, engaging in profitable farming and cattle, uh, cattle raising. And so one day they, they come to offer up gifts to the Lord. So far before we have the codified law of Moses, there are still people giving gifts and offerings to the Lord. Both of them offer something to the Father. Both of them are engaged in some sort of voluntary worship. And yet God is not pleased with one of these two offerings. You remember that? They both give something. We're not told exactly about their heart behind the gift, but we know the gift is somewhat different. And yet God looks more favorably upon what Abel was willing to bring. The scripture doesn't go into great detail concerning what made Cain's offering less acceptable to God, but we can derive a few observations from this. First of all, God has expectations on those who worship him. Worship is not just a free-for-all where we get to do whatever we want to do and hope that God's happy with it. God has expectations, and he's willing to teach us when we get it wrong. He didn't scorn Cain for bringing the wrong thing, but he did bless Abel. And there's instruction there to Cain that could have done Cain good if he was humble to receive it. God has expectations on those who worship him. God also determined for himself which offering was acceptable. It wasn't based on cultural norms. He's the one who decided, this is an acceptable offering to me, and this one is not. And he should know. He is the one being honored when we worship. Third, our reaction to God dictating worship, telling us how we should worship, can have consequences. And as you read the rest of that story, you see a bitterness welling up in Cain. Rather than learning from this mistake and growing, instead he finds himself bitter towards the affirmations that his brother received. And when no one's looking, he picks up a big rock. He's out in the field with his brother, and he kills. He kills his brother. Abel is struck down dead in that field. In fairness, I want to make it very clear that the normative principle is not a, it's not a free-for-all. We love many churches that would follow what we would call the more normative principle of worship. There is a respect there for the desires that God has laid on His Word. But the regulative principle sees worship more clearly for what it is. It's a time of reverent respect for the person and the will of a God that we do not understand apart from Him revealing Himself to us. Taking a regulative and principle approach to church worship is not an easy thing. In order to embrace it, you have to do a little bit of battle with yourself from time to time. You might have to lay down some of your personal preferences at the altar. You may need to put to death some of your pride if you want to cling to some traditions that you've been holding to for a long time if there's no justification for them in Scripture. But it is surely a battle that is worth fighting. And the ground that you gain is great. Just to close, I want to mention another word that Paul gives to us in the book of Romans, chapter 14, as it talks about the humility we need to have when we approach this act of worshiping God together corporately in a way that will build one another up. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So when we gather together, it should not be our agenda to make church look exactly how we want it to look. There shouldn't be a desire in our heart to just forge a kind of worship that pleases us the best or suits our needs or our station in life the best. But rather what we should do is look at the word of God 
and let God in his infinite wisdom say, son, daughter, this is what is pleasing to me. And because I made you in my image, I want you to reflect my glory and my goodness. I want you to reflect that I'm not a God of chaos, but I'm a God of peace and order. Worship me this way and be blessed to worship me. Let's have a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your scripture and we praise you, Lord, that you have helped us in so many ways to see why we are to look so closely at your word when we approach you to honor you and to give you glory and praise. I thank you, Father, that you have given us this great and faithful word. Again, I I said at the beginning of the the service that we would be utterly lost without these words of guidance. We would have no roadmap. We would be like men stumbling around in the darkness, not knowing where he goes. And yet we have the word, and it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So it doesn't show us everything we might desire to know of you. It doesn't unravel every mystery, Lord God, but it gives us what we need. And Father, since you are a good father, you give your children what they need and what will ultimately be best for them. So help us to trust you and to be grateful for you, Abba, for there is no one who loves us as good as you do. So we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.